Sales Tuners, Coach's Corner, Episode 1, with Ashley Early. This is Sales Tuners with Jim Brown, the only weekly show where we talk about the attitude, action, and ability that gets sales reps and entrepreneurs to grow their revenue from $1 million to more than $10 million in just two years. It's time. It's time. It's Coach's Corner time. I'm Jim Brown, your host. A couple of weeks ago, I introduced a new format I called Redefined. And I must say, I got more feedback from that single episode than I have all other episodes combined in the last six months. Evidently, you guys really liked it. This week, I'm bringing you another new format I'm calling, you guessed it, Coach's Corner where I will talk with other sales coaches or business leaders on ways to overcome the most pressing issues facing reps in today's competitive environment. Kicking off this first episode is Ashley Early, who is the program director at Vendition, a firm trying to change the way companies hire and onboard sales reps by facilitating the adoption of an apprenticeship model. Rather than setting up reps to fail with minimal training and trusting people to figure it out, they utilize the proprietary sourcing and screening process to identify those who are most likely to succeed from a diverse set of backgrounds and then provide additional support and training to essentially guarantee success post-placement. Why is this important? In the last five to seven years, there has seemingly been an explosion in the number of companies, both tech startups as well as more traditional businesses that require salespeople. Unfortunately, in that same period of time, there really hasn't been any magical creation of additional sales talent. That misalignment has led companies to over-recruit, under-train, and honestly, just hope it all works out. I've had some sales leaders tell me they'll hire 10 reps knowing full well only four will work out. What in the world is going on? I asked Ashley what she thought was the root cause of that failure rate. I think one of the struggles we've got as an industry is we've got a plethora of people who are saying, this is how you do sales. And everybody prescribes to a different school, as it were. And they're all individually good and valid and perfect for the situation that they're in, but not necessarily for how that individual will thrive and will sell properly. So you may work for a company that is hardcore medic, but you personally, as a sales rep, function much more effectively when you know challenger sales. So I can be as a third party or as a generic trainer, give you that insight to figure out, okay, here's what the company does. You're trained to do that. That's fantastic. Keep doing it. Here's another framework you can use for yourself personally to make sure that you're achieving everything that you need to do. So it's both context and personalization that really takes it over the edge. So it's not just generic training. It's that overall context, you can ramp faster, and it's that personalization so it actually means something to you. Most people know what to do, right? You've given them the process. You've given them all of those things to say, but they're not robots. They have to understand, it's your point, the context, the why behind the what. And if you can get them to understand the what, then all of a sudden the light bulb goes off like, oh, Now I know why you want me to ask that question. And now I know why it's so important to ask it this certain way. And I know why, you know, all this other stuff. And I I don't feel like many companies today either take the time to give that why or don't know how to give that why or don't care to give that why. They really just kind of throw you out there and hope you succeed. I didn't discover Simon Sinek until about three years ago. 
And it was this, I remember I was sitting in like at my desk in the, you know, classic startup open office format. So I've got my headphones in in a room of 50 people. And I'm like basically crying at my desk because I'm, I'm thinking this is what I've been trying to figure out how to vocalize for five years in terms of how I do my training and why my training sticks when other people's doesn't. And why it's so important to take that extra time at the beginning to give the context and to give the why behind the what that I want people to do. The why behind the what. That's what this whole episode is about today. I recently read a book called Range by David Epstein, and it's about why generalists are thriving in today's specialized world. There has seemed to be this huge pendulum swing with the emphasis of teaching the precision of specific skills. The only problem with that is if you're not presented with the exact problem those skills work for, well, you're kind of screwed. Instead, we need to be learning how to solve a variety of problems and know how to apply the right skills for each situation, thus the context or the why. In thinking about that, I asked Ashley what characteristics she looks for in new sales hires, and her response was not exactly what I would have expected. Somebody who has experience building things. So somebody who maybe founded a club when they were at university or who maybe didn't go to college, but just hustled their way and became the top performing rep at men's warehouse over 10 years. Somebody who has a proven concrete history of building something. So given that we're looking for a builder, someone who has the grit and determination to create something where nothing existed before, there are still hurdles for CEOs and VPs of sales to building the right team. Whether it be the desire to clone themselves or thinking everything is black and white. Early on in a company, the CEO is the 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 salesperson, right? And so they probably have come from a sales background. They're used to selling. And what they try to do is clone themselves. And they bring the person and says, you know, just come right along with me. Watch what I do. And then just do exactly that. I had a friend who called that the paint like Picasso problem, right? You can't look at a Picasso and say, see, just do that. Like it's never going to work out that way. Are you seeing that concept as well? That's absolutely something I see a lot. The other most common mistake I see is engineering CEOs. So CEOs who um, built the product and therefore they are you know, they're students of sales, they're learning, but they go and they take a book or they take something from one of their investors incredibly literally. And they think, okay, I'm going to science, you know, kind of to quote, to quote the margin, science the bleep out of sales. And you can't do that. It'll work once you've got maybe a 30, 40 person sales org, then you can go through and really science it. But those early days, it doesn't work. Similar to the notion I mentioned earlier from the book Range, another parallel thread to specialization is thinking that we can program computers with artificial intelligence to replace tasks completed by humans today. Now look, I'm a big believer in science, but when it comes down to interacting with another human being and actually thinking, I'm still going to give the nod to an actual person. There is a level of instinct that is needed, the art to the science, if you will. The reason being is that you're not dealing with completely rational or logical buyers in a sales cycle. I don't know why, but there's a trend that I've seen this year in guests on the show. I think I had four engineers, trained engineers who became salespeople and they are all succeeding now. But the first thing they had to do is to completely take off that logic and science hat because you don't sell logically. People don't buy logically. And until you have gone out and tried that and seen how bad it fails, it's never going to make sense to you because of the way that you think. Especially the 
the cold calling grind side of it. And it's kind of interesting because I've told a few people this, the science stops when somebody answers the phone. These are all scientific and mathematical concepts. But once you get to that human element, once somebody picks up the phone, that's when the instinct comes in. So I'll tell people, you know, you can A-B test your opening, your value prop, all these things. But at the end of the day, you're the person trying to make a personal connection. You say whatever you need to say to make that happen. I don't care if it's a part of whatever test you're running right now or not. You say what you need to say. As long as you don't lie, as long as you're not rude, say what you need to say. The science stops when someone answers the phone. Boom. How awesome was that? Can we train and prepare for the different paths a call may go? Absolutely. That's what our sponsor for this show, Costello, has built to be a logical co-pilot to the human on the sales call. But it still comes back to your ability to deliver that message in real time. So let's keep going. How do you overcome objections in real time? How do you determine whether or not they're just blowing you off or whether their response is legitimate? So like really listen, if you hear people in the background, if there's other things going on, they're clearly busy, get off the phone. You know, if you do this long enough, you will eventually call somebody who is in the middle of a a literal fire alarm. Had that happen. Or you'll hear kids screaming in the background. Get off the phone, be respectful, life happens. If you don't hear those cues, um, it really comes down to, I think, two things. One, the context in the call, is it right at the very beginning or is it later on? And if it's right at the very beginning, like if you are somebody who does the, do you have five minutes to open up the conversation and they say no, the number one thing I tell people is don't get off the phone. Just because they say it's not a good time doesn't mean you can't ask one more question. And typically what I say is validate their role, validate who they are, make sure that you're talking to the right person. So you're selling pens and you call an office manager and they don't answer the phone or they, sorry, they answer the phone and they say, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm busy right now. I can't, I can't talk. Got it. Completely understand. I want to be respectful of your time. So I don't unnecessarily, you know, bug you in the future. Are you responsible for ordering office supplies for your team? Yes, I am. Okay, got it. Just so you know, here's what we can do and why what we offer is different and why our pens are amazing. I'll drop you an email with some information. When would be a good time for me to call you back? Next, you know, tomorrow morning, next Wednesday. Okay, got it. No problem. I've noted that in the calendar. I'll look forward to speaking with you then. Boom. Super quick, respectful of the time. But you'd be surprised how often you'll say that and somebody will be like, oh, well, tell me more about why your pens are different. That, that, that whole concept of tell me more, it really does work on both ends, right? You as a salesperson saying, tell me more, it's sounding interesting, but also trying to get someone else to say, tell me more. That's our whole goal. Uh, I, I think that's, that's really good advice. The other thing I, I, I tell people to do a lot is name drop. So if you know one of their competitors uses you, name drop. You know, hey, I'm reaching out to you because I'm reaching out to you, Mr. Office Manager at LG Corp, because we've been doing a lot of work with Dell. And they've found a lot of value in our pens. And I want to make sure you're aware of what we have to bring to the table. When do you have five minutes for me to walk you through this? So name dropping that competitor is kind of playing up the FOMO aspect of it. It's a literal description of a, of, of a dynamic that is very present in business. If your competitor has got an edge, that's something you want to know about. Yeah, that's totally right. You know, one of the things that we've talked about, you said, be mean to them, right? And and I, I actually like that concept because I know you don't literally mean be mean to them, but it's it's don't be soft, right? And so I remember talking to somebody, I, it was a guest on, on the Sales Trainers podcast, and I said, hey, how do you overcome the objection? You know, I, I'm, I'm in a meeting or I'm about to go to a meeting or you know, what, any of those types of things. And he told me, he said, Jim, I got a story. This really happened. I called somebody, they picked up the phone and they said, you know, now it's not a good time. I'm in the middle of a meeting. But he literally said to him, he says, no, you're not. 
either you're lying to me or you are the rudest manager I've ever heard in my life. So you tell me which it is. And like, I'm kind of sitting back in my chair, like, no way you actually said He goes, yeah, I said that. And he actually paused and he says, you got me. What's up? And he got to have the conversation. I've got a similar story. Somebody way back in the day, somebody said, you know, you can't, I, I, I gave a value prop and he's like, oh, I'm, I'm not interested. I said, do you mind if I ask why you're not interested? Why you're not interested? He said, because honestly, there's no way you can back up your claim. Wow. And I, and I, I think he got me just on a particularly sassy day. Cause I basically, I went off on him. I was like, you know, honestly, sir, I wouldn't be wasting your time. If you go to our website, we've got 50 different case studies. We're used by X, Y, and Z of your competitors. I've got five different tech. I've got five different vendors who I know that you use, who also use us. So basically you're the only person who hasn't heard of us and that's not my fault. Do you want to punish your company for your own ignorance? But let's back up for just a moment, because that only applies if we actually get someone on the phone. For some reason, despite the fact that phones are being manufactured to weigh less and less, they seem to all of a sudden become the heaviest bricks in the world right about the time we're supposed to start a cold calling block. Ashley shared a few thoughts, as well as some creative ways to shift the focus of your calls. So I think the first step of overcoming call reluctance is really to understand why they're call reluctant. Um, is it a lack of confidence? Is it a fear of rejection? Is it a fear of failure, which is different from fear of rejection? It comes down to why it's going on. You'd be surprised. I think the most common thing probably is people are actually afraid of failing um, early on, more often than not. These are people who, they're not necessarily afraid of rejection, but they're afraid of screwing up. So I spend a lot of time working with people telling them it's okay to screw up. I want you to screw up. I want you to screw up big. Like I want you to think of a big screw up as a big win because great, you've made that massive error. You will never do that again. That's a win. I'd rather you do that in your first week than in your sixth month when I can't spot it. When it comes to confidence, it's cold calling, but there comes a point where you kind of have to shove them into the deep end. And sometimes it's just as simple as telling people like, hey, I understand. We're going to sit here. I'll hold your hand if you need me to, you know, metaphorically. Um, but you're going to make 10 cold calls right now. And giving really specific, like, you need to do this right now. And I'll, I'm here. I'm supportive. I will sign other people. We're here for you. But you just need to pick up the phone and just start doing it. Usually they're fine pretty quick. Um, if it's confidence because of a lack of knowledge, it's making sure they actually know. And if they know it, tell them, you've got this you know, you don't need me sort of thing. And then if it's fear of rejection, it's honestly just do some cold calls where you're just freaking mean to them. Be, I, I always, I always tell people when I'm doing mock calls, you don't do anyone any favors by being nice. I compare it to being doing like peer editing when you're back in high school or whatever. Nobody likes to give their paper to the person who's going to make two quick marks on it and give it back. You want to give it to the person in the class who's going to rip it to shreds and give it back to you because that's the person who's going to help you get to that A. Mock calls are the same way. And that, that craving for training and craving for you're doing this right, you're doing this wrong, work on these things, it's, it's everywhere. And nobody likes doing mock calls. There, it's a, I, that's actually a question I use a lot. I call, it a, I call it a bullshit meter question. If I ask somebody and they say they like doing mock calls, I know they're BSing me because they're really awkward and painful. And they should be. Like a good mock call will be horrifically painful. It'll be more brutal than anything you will probably ever get on the phones in the real world. But as a result, A, 
We're testing you to the point of breaking you, which is good because we can rebuild you. Just like a broken bone grows back stronger, I'm going to break you in a mock call so that when you get on the phone, everything looks easy and you're stronger to begin with. I'd rather you break in a mock call than break in front of a prospect. That's actually really... You're completely right in that because I know uh, when I do mock calls with some of my reps, I, I am. I'm very hard on them, right? I'm hard on them in the moment. And then I'm actually hard on them when I critique them. And I will ask them like, what do you think someone's going to say when you actually pick up the or they pick up the phone and start having that conversation with you? And you know, they think it's going to be just like I am and like really hard. And it never is. Like... I'll get, them, I'll get them to try a, a new tactic. Like, no, there's no way they'll respond well to that. And I'm like, just try it, right? And they go out and do it. And all of a sudden, they're like, oh my gosh, Jim, like that worked. He he actually responded to that. Like that allowed me to start the conversation. Like amazing, right? Like, do you think I just do this because I want to put you in pain? Like, I know this stuff can work. You just have to be the one willing to do it. It's also little things like creating games for myself. Like I started challenging my peers to who could make the most calls in the day, who could get hung up on the most, who could you know, be told no the most times in a day, just anything about the call that could make it more of a game. We started having a word of the day on some of the, t- on the team at one point where like everyone could, we pick a ridiculous word like undisestablishmentarianism. <laughs> and it was anybody who could work that into a call got, you know, anybody, the first person who could work that into a call got their coffee purchased the next day. Here's what's interesting about that. You now are taking the pressure off of yourself to perform on those calls. And don't get me wrong. I know you need to perform, but you're taking the pressure off of yourself because you're no longer thinking about what are they going to say if I do this? Or how am I going to open this? Like You're thinking, how can I say anti-disestablishmentarianism in this call in a relevant context? And now like you just get to have a legitimate conversation trying to find a place to plug that word. I think that's fantastic. All right. It's time for one last question. Ashley, if you had a get out of jail free card, what crime would you commit? I would basically illegally evict someone from a flat in London and illegally immigrate and live there. <laughs> Tell me more. Oh, I, I, my husband and I both have a, um, a passion for pretty much all things British, um, despite all the issues they've got going on over there, no different than anywhere else in the world. Um, it's always been a dream to live extended, not like a trip, but like really live in London. Um, so maybe kick someone out of a nice row house in Hammer in Hammersmith and go live up there forever would be amazing. <laughs> I, I Everything about London is amazing. It's every time I go there, I feel energized and refueled and it's just fabulous. I love everything about it over there. That's a wrap for our first episode of Coach's Corner. But if you have questions, concerns, challenges, or issues you want to hear about on the show, I'd love to hear from you. Please go to salestuners.com slash askjb and let me know what you think. All right. I hope to see you next week. Until then, I'm Jim Brown. Let's make it rain. Thank you for listening to Sales Tuners. Stay up to date at www.salestuners.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. And they stay there.